The sermon today is called Leadership Part 2, which means last week, if you can guess, was leadership. Yeah, how many of you missed it? How many of you, because it was too cold, or I want you to stand up and tell me why you weren't here last weekend when all the rest of us froze out in the lot. Try it, no, I don't want you to tell me, but that's all right. But if you missed part one, what you have to understand is it's available online. If you missed the whole first half of this two-part sermon series, there's a lot we're learning from the life of Moses. Maybe like me, you're hearing all of these amazing things that happened in Moses' life, and you're like, if even one of those things happened in my life, I'd be a living legend. And for Moses, the awesome things keep happening. We've already spent, I think, 19 weeks with Moses, and we just got to the foot of Mount Sinai. There's even more coming. How awesome is his life? Maybe one day, if God writes an amazing enough story in your life, you could have a whole sermon series that's just named you. <laughs> Our sermon series is just called Moses. You know, it could just be Bill or, or something. That's how amazing Moses is. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 18, verse 8. We're learning about leadership. The world has a lot to say about leadership. And if we're not careful, we will follow unbiblical definitions of leadership. But there is so much wisdom out there because the world has put a lot of thought into this concept. So I, I looked up a few more leadership quotes, uh, and one of them comes from uh, General Norman Schwarzkopf. Remember him? Here's what he said. He said, leadership is a potent combination of strategy and character. But if you must be without one, be without the strategy. That's great. General Colin Powell said this, Great leaders are almost always great simplifiers who can cut through argument, debate, and doubt to offer a solution everybody can understand. That's so uh, applicational for what Moses is learning from his father-in-law, Jethro, about simplifying what's going on in the nation. President Abraham Lincoln said this, Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. See, that power is a test of character. And Moses was facing a test right now because he had more power than he could ever imagine. The leadership of the country was his, and he didn't even have anyone else yet who was authorized to lead. What would that feel like to just have all the power? Well, for Moses, it felt completely overwhelming. He was trying to do it all Lone Ranger. That had to change. Last week, I gave you a definition of what spiritual leadership is in the church. I really want us to understand this because people are coming from a variety of church backgrounds here. You've arrived here in some way at Harvest Palace. Maybe you're a member, maybe you're a visitor, maybe you're checking out a church, but I want you to know what leadership is here. Leadership is not getting to a place where you get to come to meetings and make decisions. All right, everybody say, that's not it. That's not it. If you, if you are longing for a day when you get to come to a meeting and sit at a table and make a decision that's never going to happen. That's not how leadership works here. Leaders here help others worship, walk, and work. It's so crucial that you know what a leader is here. A leader here helps others worship, walk, and work. If you are in a position where because of you, Other people are worshiping Christ better, walking with Christ better, and working for Him better than you are a leader here. If you're not helping other people in their spiritual walk, you're not leading, right? You're not a leader. That is what spiritual leadership is. In many churches, maybe for some of the churches you went to growing up, leadership was not that. Leadership was people who had a title, and they went to meetings, and they made decisions. And they really didn't help other people mature in Christ. 
That's not spiritual leadership. So the question then is, how can we be a church that raises up people who can help us to worship, walk, work? We're going to learn that from Moses today, but first let's pray. Father, we know that you want leaders, strong leaders, men and women, to carry your sheep forward in their faith. You want to raise up spirit-empowered people who know that they have a responsibility and a gift, not to exalt themselves, not to serve themselves, but to help other people truly move forward in love for Christ. May we be a church that does great at raising up leaders, and may we be a church that does a great job as leaders aim to mature and encourage your flock. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, go to Exodus chapter 18. We dug into the text more last week, so I'm just going to summarize what's happened as we move on with the application of the text this week. But Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, showed up. And he heard the whole amazing story of what God did in Egypt, and he was blown away. Then he sat down and watched Moses, a day in the life of Moses, uh, and he was really discouraged at what he was seeing because Moses was a one-man band. Let me give you the first three points from last week because we're starting off at number four in your bulletin this week. But here's the first three, just just to remind us. Number one, we saw leaders must be living proof of God's greatness. As Moses told Jethro all that God did, it was so evident that God had done a wonderful thing in Moses' life. He had saved Moses from certain death, and he had broken a lot of character flaws down, and we call that salvation and sanctification. Leaders have no spiritual credibility until they have a story of how God saved them and how God is changing them. Number two, leaders must have big ears. Moses was willing to let Jethro speak into his life. Moses was willing to let God sit him down and tell him the truth. Number three, leaders must learn to share their power. Moses had to start raising up thousands of other leaders, and in doing so, he had to share his power with other people. Otherwise, he would become the bottleneck. So those are the first three points. Leave them up there for another second for people who are trying to write them down. Now, let's read in Exodus chapter 18, where it says in verse 13, The next day Moses sat to judge the people. When the people stood around Moses from morning till evening, when... Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people. He said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? So how many of you have ever been to court? I'll admit it. I've been to court. You want to know why? I was naughty. I sped. Back when I was in college, I got speeding tickets. And I drove a 1981 uh, custom cruiser station wagon. It took like a full minute to actually start speeding in that beast. But I managed to pull it off, and I got pulled over a few times. So there I was, standing in line in court. And it's just so boring. You're just standing in line in court, and you've got to get up to the front and tell them what you did. So you get all the way up to the front. And like, How do you plead? Eh, guilty. But then I was also in trouble because I didn't have proof of insurance. So the judge was like, do you have proof of insurance? And I said, yeah, I gave him the card. And then there was this attorney over there, and his job was to put me away for life. And he looked really angry. And so he took the insurance card. He looked at the card, looked at me and the card, me, and he said, Your Honor, there's no expiration date on this. I don't know if it's still valid. And he looked at me, and the judge looked at me, and I was like, That's all I have? (laughs) I don't know what I'm going to do. And so I did what any uh, college student who was about to go to jail would do. I turned to my mom, and I said, Mom. (laughs) And my mom got up with her purse and stormed up to the podium and became my defense attorney. And a mom at any time in her purse has everything necessary to save her children from every problem. So I don't know what she pulled out, 
But she stared that other defensive, she stared that prosecuting attorney down and said something to the judge, and I went free. I went free. Uh, so, good job, Mom. Anyway, I'm channeling all of that because Moses here, imagine if you're in like a super long line for, and people are all angry and they've got stuff they're bringing to Moses and Moses is like, next, 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 all day long. Moses' father-in-law is like, wrong. So in verse 15, Moses' father-in-law, he says, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I'll give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God, bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. That's where we get point four. Jot this down. Leaders must teach others to obey God's word. Let me read that again. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. This is not just a mandate to Moses. This is a mandate to every church in the world. Here's what God wants of those leaders. Warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. The New Testament equivalent of this in the Great Commission is go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey what? Teaching them to obey what? Everything I have commanded. That's what Jesus wants from the leaders in his church. Leaders must teach others to obey God's word. This begins when leaders are taught by God's word, meaning I'm learning it. Moses is taught directly by God. How cool would that be if you sit down to do your devotions in the glorious, glowing presence of Almighty God? And then when you're done, you walk outside and your face is glowing. That'd be pretty awesome. That's what Moses had. He was taught by God's word, and then he passed that along. This really reveals our uh, conviction as a church that God's word must be proclaimed. We have four pillars here as a church, and one of them is proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. It's something that will never change about our DNA. We'll never do a little congregational poll and see, you know, what do you, what do you want us to teach up here? Oh, you don't want God's word? All right, then we'll, we'll never do that because it's a pillar. We've decided in advance uh, that we don't want to be a church that talks about what people want to hear. We want to be a church that talks about what God wants said, which is why my Bible's open every weekend and I'm going verse by verse through a passage We're making a statement that it's a conviction, it's a pillar that God's word is to be proclaimed. That's what he wants. He wants it to be preached. Uh, He wants it to be preached in season and out of season. He wants us to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience so that God's people might be brought to maturity. It's what God wants, and it's what he wants his leaders to be all about. Now, I don't ordinarily, rarely I will talk about evaluating what other churches are doing, right, But in this context, what I have to do is I have to say this is not just one way of doing it. There's a reason why we preach God's word. It's because this is what he wants to be happening in his church. But when you look around, it's heartbreaking to see what's happening in other churches instead of preaching God's word. And I also think about people who are looking for a church to call home. And I just want to give you some helpful insight based on what God's challenging his leaders to be about. 
what perhaps you should look for, whether it's here or in a different like-minded church. Right? This isn't about harvest being the only way, but this is about the type of church God wants you to find. Okay? So here's what other churches are doing instead of preaching God's word. You can jot these down. First, shallow encouragement. Shallow encouragement. Churches that offer no demand of change or repentance. None. It's always helpful stories. It's always encouraging words. And um, in some churches, they use God's word really well. And they aim to keep things light, but they do use God's word. They just use it differently. It's not necessarily those churches that I'm challenging us about. It's a church where God's word really isn't opened at all. The pastor's not holding a Bible. Maybe there's a verse popped on the screen at some point during the sermon, but then it's taken off pretty quickly. And the Bible is nothing more than a tiny little footnote in all that a man has to say to you. And listen, the last thing you should be looking forward to when you're on your way here is, I wonder what Pastor Ryan thinks. You know, I hope he talks about his political views. I hope he gives us some philosophical... No, no. I hope he speaks for the Lord and opens the book and shares something God has said to me today. That's what we should long for, right? Who cares what I think? Uh, You shouldn't even care about that. And so when a church is transformed into offering shallow, emotional, human encouragement and there's no demand for change or repentance and God's word is not preached, uh, that is not what God has in mind for his church. That's not it. That's not it. And... When you go to a church where you are left starving for God's word and malnourished, it is not healthy for your soul. It's hazardous for your soul to be in a church that has decided not to preach God's word. Let's let's say that that's the equivalent of like swimming in the kiddie pool, all right? And a church that has decided to not feed its people God's word is like keeping them in the kiddie pool. They will not mature these people. They will not grow them up. And they're not doing the people a favor by by not challenging them. They're not. This is not helpful. This is not biblical. Uh, This is a church that will not use God's word. And therefore, people, their, their people will be starving and malnourished. That's one group of churches that are not doing what God has challenged them to do. They've set the truth aside. Now, another group on the opposite has set the love of Christ aside. You can jot this down. Churches are instead focusing on a cold legalism. Cold legalism. This is a church that has set the love of Christ aside. Uh, They do not love the world. They hate the world. They do not love the lost. They hate the lost. And they don't even really love the rest of the Christians. They are really fired up and really angry most of the time. Maybe you grew up in a legalistic church where the focus was always on the outside, conformity to not just what the Bible says, but there's a whole encyclopedia of additional stipulations. And if you don't follow the rules, you are going to be judged or put out of the church. Okay, this is not what God has commanded his church to be about. All right? If I do not love, I am, I'm what? Nothing. Nothing. And a church that has lost its first love. Revelation says something about that, doesn't it? Meaning you've lost your love for Christ and your love for one another. Christ judges that church. 
The truth is that a church that's cold and legalistic is really preaching a false gospel. That if you follow the rules on the outside, the inside is sure to follow. That's not the way Christ changes a heart. Christ changes a life from the inside out, which is why we preach the grace and love and mercy of God. And we do it in a context where people will sin and, and, and they'll fall down and they'll slip up and they need help and they need a lot of help. And in cold, legalistic churches, they're not given that help. So if the shallow encouragement church is kind of the kiddie pool, this is what I would call the polar bear club. The polar bear club. You are swimming in ice cold water all the time. And you judge and you are judged. And it's a toxic environment in these churches. Why? Because they won't teach the love of Christ. They won't do the hard work of bearing with the, with the mess that people have made. And, and, and they won't help a person to learn what it means to love the Lord. Cold legalistic churches uh, aren't teaching the whole counsel of God. So there's the shallow encouragement. They turn the truth off. Then there's the cold legalism. They turn the love off. And then jot this down. There's liberal cultural gospel churches. And let me clarify what I mean by that. I don't mean liberalism in terms of politics or anything. I mean, I mean when it comes to biblical orthodoxy, they are theologically liberal, meaning they have let go of many of the orthodox views of the Bible and God and salvation. They've let go of some of those things that have been nailed down in the early church and in the Reformation. And they are liberal theologically, and they get their gospel from the culture. This would be a worldly church where anything and everything goes. You come in and you, you don't think Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. That's fine. Whatever you believe, come on in. And you, know, you want to live in a sinful way and not repent from that? That's fine. Come on in as you are and you don't have to change. This is a liberal cultural gospel where anyone can come in any way of life and they can just not change. And they can believe anything about God and Jesus and the Bible. Just come on in. There's no doctrinal statement. There's no expectation that sin is left behind. So this wouldn't be like a kiddie pool. This wouldn't be like a polar bear club. This would be the equivalent of swimming in a sewer. Of swimming in a sewer where the sin of the world and the scandal of the world flows freely into God's church. And anyone who is in that environment gets filthy morally before God. This is a church where sin is normalized and glamorized and God's word is trivialized. This church is not honoring to the Lord. The shallow encouragement, the cold legalism, the liberal cultural gospel, what else is happening instead of preaching God's word? Jot this down. Empty ritual and ceremony. Empty ritual and ceremony. Maybe like me, you grew up in a church that put a high value on ceremony, repetition, uh, and you almost sit and watch the worship experience happen up front. And based on what some religious people are doing, your hope is that some of that will will rub off on you because you're around it, right? This would be a church where the reliance is not on the person of Christ and the gospel, but the reliance is on the rituals, the repetition, and the things in the room to perhaps bear some magical spiritual power that can get you spiritually better somehow. Uh, but, but there's like this magical reverence and this mystical hope that somehow what people are doing up front and what I get from those people can fix me spiritually for the week. And then I come back next week for more. Um, what is this like? This is kind of like swimming in a wishing well. In a wishing well. Where you hope that because you're around this 
mystical, magical, ritualistic stuff that somehow that blessing will fall on you, although you're not quite sure how. And after you leave this world, you're not quite sure if it did clean you completely. It's like swimming in a wishing well. I hope that based on all the time I've spent in the wishing well, that my wish comes true and I get to go to heaven, but I'm not quite sure. Um, Churches that focus on the ritual and the ceremony and the physical elements fail to preach God's word, fail to see that this is the hope. This is the hope. So if we're not aiming to be shallow encouragement, cold legalism, liberal cultural gospel, or empty ritual, what are we going for? We want every week to dive deeply into God's holy word because this right here is the living water, the rest and the renewal for our soul. This is it right here. And we have to be a church where this is right in the center of the table. This is the main event. This is it. This is the feature presentation. This is what we're all about together. Leaders must teach others to obey God's word. You have to find a church that preaches the word of God without apology. It's because we believe the nature of truth is not that we're free to assemble it ourselves. Like, well, what I believe is, and then I put it together on my own. As if there's like a box of Legos and I just get to assemble what I want and call it truth. Then somebody else gets to assemble what they want and call it truth. And they're both equally true. We don't believe that's the nature of truth. We believe that God must disclose truth or we can't find it. And he has disclosed truth. He's done it in creation and he's done it through special revelation, which is his word. Leaders must cling to that. Leaders must believe that God's word is authoritative. We can't just make it up as we go along. Leaders who drift from pure doctrine will destroy the church. They will. And so we need leaders who cling to it, hold on to it like their life depends on it, And they know that it's their job to teach others to obey God's word. Well, that's what Moses was challenged on first here. Warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. That's number four. Reading on number five, you can write this down. Leaders must fear God. Leaders must fear God. It goes on to say, Moreover, look for able men who are uh, from all the people, men who fear God and are trustworthy and hate a bribe. Place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. I I could have preached this different ways, but I chose to use the fear God as the governing feature here, and then the others as kind of like sub-points of that. You don't have to, but that's the way I'm going to present it. Leaders must fear God, and then there's evidence that they do. When it comes to spiritual leadership, this is so crucial, it's not enough for a leader to have money. Well, that person's got money, so we should get them a leadership position. It's not enough for a person to have a powerful personality. You know what? People will listen. It's not enough for a person even to be able to get things done. You know what? She can get things done. Let's put her in charge. Fundamentally, a leader must fear God. There must be a spiritual holy awe that comes over that person's heart when they think about leading God's people anywhere. Leaders must fear God. General Douglas MacArthur, we've got a picture of him in World War II. Quite a strong leader who received the Japanese surrender at the end of the war. He grew up in the Pacific. I'm not sure where. I think it was in uh, the Philippines or Malaysia. He grew up over there. So he understood that culture. And when he received the Japanese surrender, he gave a speech. I wonder what would happen if a general gave this speech today. Here's what he said. 
We have had our last chance. If we don't now devise some greater and more equitable system, Armageddon will be at our door. That's a Bible word. The problem, listen, the problem is basically theological. Now, why would he say that? Because he just finished a long and costly battle with an enemy, the Japanese, who believed what? Who believed that their emperor was a god. And the emperor promised to protect the skies over the Japanese island. He said, no bomb will ever fall on our land. Whoops. Because there were a couple big ones. But they would die for this emperor because they believed something, he uses the word, theological. Meaning it's what they believed about God that drove them into this war. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the root of the problem is not political. It's theological. They thought their emperor was a god and they fought to the death for him. That's the problem. Can you even imagine someone staying up, standing up today and saying, you know, the problem in the Middle East is there's a different theology and it's what they believe about God that's driving them to... Whoa! Whoa, whoa, whoa! And yet this is what the general said. The problem is basically theological and involves spiritual reactivation and improvement of human character that will synchronize with our almost matchless advances in science, art, and literature and all material and cultural developments of the past 2,000 years. It must be of the Spirit if we are to save the flesh. He's, he's on the USS whatever, giving this speech at the surrender. He's like, the problem is spiritual. This is a strong leader who fears God and understands the unfolding events in his day as a spiritual problem. What an example. Leaders must fear God. It's not enough to say, I'm tough, I could lead people into battle. Yeah, he's got to get to the root of it all and say people need to fear God. That's the problem. Leaders must fear God. How do we do that? Jot this down. We have to value excellence. We have to value excellence. It says here in verse 21, look for able men from all the people. Able. The word able means to have strength and capacity to do a great job. You've got the strength, you've got the capacity to do a great job. In our church, we really value excellence. We want to put people in places where they can work hard, do their best, and see the fruit of that. Um, and we value excellence over the desire to participate. So if somebody's like, I really want to be on the worship team, and they sound like a goose being strangled, we don't mind hurting their feelings once so that they don't hurt our feelings a lot. <laughs> We want them to find the right place where they can serve skillfully, right? Some people don't get this. There was, one, there was one story at a different harvest where somebody was told they couldn't be on the worship team. So instead they joined the tech team. And uh, he, while he was serving on the soundboard, rigged up a little mic so that he could sing during church. And he got caught singing, because it was bad. And then he got removed from the tech team. Like, talk about it. You're not going to tell me where I can and can't serve. Some people just don't get that. Like, how can you tell me I can't serve there? But we really value excellence as a church because we think that honors the Lord. He wants us to do our best to present ourselves as worth and approved. Well, you can do your best in an area of strength, right? So we value excellence and we want people to have the capacity. When I think of people in our church who are really leading well, I think of Kim Lang, who leads our women's ministry, um, and she does a fantastic job. When we sat down a few years ago and talked about this, 
I said to myself, boy, Kim is a woman who fears God. She is. But is this the right fit for her? And as we talked, it became really apparent. She's got the energy and the drive and the passion, and she knows it's going to make it's going to change her schedule to commit that much time, especially during conference periods, to the women's ministry. But she did it. And she does such a fantastic job. Do you see how it's not just that she's a good woman who fears the Lord, right? And, and it's more than that. She does an excellent job at it. And that's what we want to see happen. We want skill and we want commitment. We want you to find a place where you can serve skillfully in areas of strength. Sadly, many people when they start working for Christ, they don't bring their best. They try and bring their least. You know, they don't want to be on the schedule all that much. And they don't quite get here on time. They don't really prepare a lot. And it's hard to watch when people see it as, well, it's just church. Well, it's just church. Right? And I would just really challenge that mindset. If you kind of have been raised on the, well, it's just church. Let me just correct that very quickly here. Um, it's just the king of kings who's worthy of every breath you've ever breathed and every moment you've ever lived and you should always be praising him with every word i'm not going to stop you ever speak and it's just that person who's ruling the heavens who you're bringing something to what do you mean it's just church what higher place can you bring your very best than before the lord jesus and he cares that you're trying to bring him your best. He cares. Well, not me. I'm just serving in the nursery. He cares that you're loving those children. He sees that. It's going to come up on Judgment Day. Angels, how did she do on nursery duty? Whoa, whoa. That was being graded? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. Well, if I had known, I would have done my best. I'm telling you now. Bring your best to the Lord, whatever you're doing. Don't see it as just church. Uh, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. That was the heart, right? That was the heart of David. Is that your heart? Pastor Mark was leading worship rehearsal in our early days when we were trying to really build up this value of excellence. And one of the guitar players we had back then just wouldn't really learn the part. Like he thought he knew better than Chris Tomlin how that part should be played, right? And so Pastor Mark had to finally say, hey, I really think you need to learn the part. And this guy said, in front of the whole worship team, he said, Mark, I don't think God cares how I play that part. I don't think God cares. Just like, talk about it, I'm just going to do it my way. And Mark was about to say something, and then thankfully another worship team member beat him to it and said, hey, God cares a lot how you play that part. He wants us to do our best. Come on, let's do it right. And Mark was like, See, and when it, when it gets into the culture that we're bringing our best, we're doing our best. This isn't, you know, this isn't just a volunteer effort. We're volunteering our very best for the king of kings. Uh, then we develop excellence in the culture. Moses had to pick men who were able. They could do a great job. Leaders must fear God, value excellence, jot this down, dethrone the dollar. It says here, able men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. Hate a bribe. Hate a bribe. The idea there is that leaders have to dethrone the dollar. Hate bribes. Specifically, it means you don't get bribed. But generally, it means that money really can't be your God. It's tragic when men or women who love money get empowered to leadership positions in God's church. It's absolutely tragic. 
because it can lead to corruption of so many forms. Uh, Theft, of course, is a huge problem, even in the church. People who love money have terrible habits and see this as a chance to profit personally. Uh, It's sad when even at the senior pastor level or the elder level, there is a concerted effort to profit in illicit ways from ministry. That's tragic. And it's because the dollar is on the throne. The Bible says that you cannot serve both God and money. It's impossible. Right now, either money or God is on the throne of your heart. And if money is, God isn't. And if God is, money isn't. Sometimes people come around God and his people, but the dollar is really the king. And you can see when that person is threatened to lose the dollar or whatever, then they leave God behind. They were fine to be around God when God helped their true God stay in power, which is the dollar. But once there was a choice, money was the wind in their sail, and money was what drove them to make the next choice. We cannot have leaders who have money on the throne of their heart. We can't have corrupt, shady people enslaved by the dollar who are leading God's people. Financial corruption will ruin a leader and ruin a church. We can't be ruled by the dollar. It's very hard to prove if a person loves money. But there are yellow and red flags that you can look for. If a person obviously is doing things that are illegal, it's a big warning sign. If they are spending themselves into tremendous amount of debt and they don't have a spending plan and they keep doing that, that's a, that's a lack of wisdom. If when it comes to money, they just will not have a sane schedule because they want to earn and work for as much money as they can, that's a warning sign. Really, the biggest warning sign, though, do you know what it is? The biggest warning sign that money is really on the throne is if we're interviewing a leader and talking to them, then we'll say, well, tell us how you uh, love the Lord with your money. And if there is not an established track record of sacrificial, generous giving, that's the biggest problem. And what we reason through, what we ask that person is, Why won't you bring money to your God? Why won't you do it? And sometimes, sadly, the answer is they won't bring money to their God because money is their God. And if you won't bring money to God because you're afraid he'll take it away, that's one of the clearest ways to know that money is in control. But a person who is generously, sacrificially, anxiously, fearfully, given to the Lord, not knowing how it will all work out, shows that money's not in charge. God's in charge. That's one of the key ways that you can know. Disthrone the dollar. Value excellence. And jot this down. Be honest. Be honest. It says people who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. Trustworthy. The word trustworthy means reliable, like a, literally means of truth, a man of truth, a person of truth. It can mean telling the truth. It can mean living the truth. It means you're not duplicitous. It means you are who you are. There's no secrets. Our church over the past 18 months has really been harmed by several people who had another way of living. They were leaders, staff members, small group leaders, and then suddenly, boom, their true self comes out. And they've been faking it. They've been living two lives. And the damage that is done to our church uh, was horrible. They weren't honest. I like what Warren Wiersbe says about being an honest person and a leader. He says this, The daily decisions of life, small and great, cement each stone into the cathedral of character. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Every day, 
small decisions cement each stone into the cathedral of character. And then when you step back and you evaluate a person, uh, the decisions they've been making to be reliable and trustworthy and upright form this like whole cathedral of character. shows that they are of the Lord. And other people who keep hiding and, and cheating and stealing and lying, and they build up this whole monument to their own sin. And it'll fall down eventually. So number four, leaders must teach others to obey God's word. Number five, leaders must fear God, value excellence, dethrone the dollar, be honest. The number six, jot this down, leaders must answer the call. Moses got this mandate, and then he had to go around, it says, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. So Moses knocks on your tent, knock, 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 and you come out, and he's like, hey, and you're like, hey, Moses, and he says, I have a proposition for you. And you're like, okay. I would like a thousand people to form a line in front of your tent starting tomorrow. Because right now they're in front of me, but I want them to form a line in front of your tent. So will you become a chief of a thousand? <laughs> and these people might be like, um, I'm really busy. I got a little behind, you know, with all this travel we've been doing. So I wish I could, but I just can't right now. Slam the tent door. What did Moses want? He wanted to put me in charge of a thousand people. Did you tell him no? I told him no. Good. And if everyone had done that, if everyone had slammed the tent door in Moses' face, the nation would be in tough shape. Instead, God is prompting people. He's challenging people to answer the call, to say, you know what? I'm not just going to participate in what God's doing. I'm going to help lead others. I'm going to carry that weight so that Moses isn't the only one. It says in verse 24, and Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law, did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart. He went away to his own country. You see, the person who's in charge of a thousand wasn't alone. He had somebody in charge of hundreds under him and then fifties under them and then tens under them. This was shared leadership. And any church that wants to thrive and grow has to have a shared leadership mindset. Meaning, I'm not just going to expect other people to do the leadership. Right? I'm going to step up and I'm going to help carry that weight. I love it when I hear people saying, you know, how do I find out more about leadership here? I, I, I love it when people start asking, maybe I could be a small group leader. I love it when small group leaders start saying, maybe I could be a flock leader. I love it when people start saying, you know what? Maybe God wants me to go get some education so that I can do better at leading. I love it when Mike Kioski, one of our elders, said, I think God's calling me to, to just, you know, sell my practice as an optometrist and just go to Romania and strengthen churches. I love that. That's leader development. That's leader development. I love it when our church budget gets to the point where we can hire another staff member to strengthen the work of leadership, right? That's so exciting and so encouraging because the church is growing stronger. But leaders must answer the call. God will challenge many of you to step up into a role of leadership, and you have to be ready to make the sacrifices that that uh, in involves. You can't slam the tent in God's face. For me, I told you last week the story of how I got started in leadership. Go listen to the sermon if you want to hear the whole story. But it was very traumatic. I was at leader camp at ISU over the summer as a high schooler. I got a big rash on my face. Nobody danced with me. It's a long story. But go listen to it next, last week. But I bounced back. In the church, though, the way I got started as a leader is the pastor said, hey, we, uh, we need more deacons. We had just launched a church, and so he wanted more deacons. We had merged with another church. We were a church of about maybe 75 people. So I said, all right, I'll be a deacon. 
So I showed up to the deacons meeting and the pastor had just started to get this church merger group uh, growing in their understanding of what leadership meant. So like at my first deacons meeting, we sat down and one of the guys there literally put his head down on the table and fell asleep during the meeting. Like snoozed. I was like, this is what leaders do? Huh. Thankfully, that pastor didn't settle for that. He raised the bar and he started challenging people to step up and bring their best. And he really renovated the leadership culture there at that church. So I was a deacon. Then the day came where our new little church needed a youth pastor. And they said, well, hey, will you consider becoming the part-time youth pastor? And I'm like, well, I've never even gone to a youth ministry growing up, but hey, maybe God's got this for me. So they asked me to leave the deacon meeting. So I left the deacon meeting so they could talk about whether or not I would become a youth pastor. So I went into the kitchen and I decided to make some coffee because I was a little nervous. So I made some coffee and I accidentally broke the whole coffee pot, like just shattered it. I was just standing there with the handle like, oh no, look at the fire I broke the coffee pot. So I hit it. And then I went in there and they told me they want me to become the youth pastor. And then I confessed that I broke the coffee pot. Right? That became overnight. It was like Pastor Ryan, which was so strange. I was still a teacher, but I was Pastor Ryan. And God opened that door for me to have full-time job, part-time youth pastor. Then a few years later, they invited me to be the full-time youth pastor. So I left teaching behind, took on more responsibility in the church. Then suddenly it was youth pastor and adult ministry, and I was even in charge of the worship team at one point. Church had grown to like 175. And then finally Lauren and I were like, we think God's calling us to go start a church. And so I stepped out and got training for that. And God just kept giving me new assignments. But that's how he grew me as a leader in the church. It started with me breaking a coffee pot in the kitchen while they were trying to figure out what it is. And yet God just kept challenging me to do more. I don't know where you're at, but we've had people who have answered the call in the past. I love it when we challenge people to drop everything and go down to Houston last year, right? And just serve for a whole weekend because of the hurricane that was happening there. They answered the call. I challenged them at noon to leave that night. One guy was standing next to his wife. He looked at his phone and he saw my text. Hey, we're sending a team to Houston tonight. I'd love for you to be on it. He showed his wife the text and she said, bye-bye. He answered the call. They just went. And when God asks you and challenges you to grow, to take on leadership responsibility, you have to answer the call. I'm sure that in, a, in our church right here, there are people who could step up and lead a small group. Now, why don't you? I'm sure there are some people, small group leaders, who could become flock leaders and oversee two, three groups. Why don't you? There are some people who could become service coordinators or teachers with our kids. Hey, why not? Maybe there are some people where God is just prompting you. You know, maybe ministry is in your future, right? Pastoral work, church work, worship. Who knows? Maybe he's prompting you. and The Spirit is doing that. The Spirit is giving you a call to lead. Maybe you feel called to the mission field. There are all sorts of ways we can help you identify where and how or if that is true. But are you feeling that? And are you responding to that? And are you letting the Lord lay demands on your life? Or are you putting up the shield and the bubble and slamming the tent door and saying, no, no. We need people who answer the call. And we want to be a culture of people who share the burden of leadership with others. Leaders must answer the call. And then what's the result? It says here the result is, Jethro said it'll be easier for you, meaning one guy's not doing it all. It'll be shared. It says God will direct you. You will endure and people will thrive. Hey, I want all of that for our church. I want all of it. 
Maybe you're interested in finding out more about leadership. Let me just close by saying there is an event coming up March 4th, Sunday, March 4th, right after both services. It's called Welcome to Leadership. It's the first thing anyone can do to find out how they can get plugged into leadership here. So if you're a member here, if you've been coming here and you worship, walk, work, and you're like, hey, how can I learn about leadership? Let me just invite you. Anybody can come. Come to Welcome to Leadership, Sunday, March 4th, right after each service, and we will lay out what a leader is, how they lead, and how you can get ready and on that road toward leadership. Hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close out this two-part series. Let's thank Him for the leaders we have, and let's ask Him to continue raising up more leaders for the work. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that You would give us so many people here at Harvest who are willing to look around and say they will serve other people by leading, lifting the others up, growing them in their faith. We know that leadership is not about us. It's never been about us. It's about serving your people. Help us to have the hearts of servants. Help us to have humble hearts, knowing that no one is equal to such a task. We just think about John the Baptist, who said he's not even worthy to untie your sandals, Jesus. And that's true for us. We don't deserve for you to give us these responsibilities, but it is truly an honor. Help us as leaders to lead well. Help us to teach people your word. Help us to do an excellent job. We pray that you would help us to answer the call if you're laying more on us. Help us not to guard the plate saying, you can't put that on there, Lord, but with surrendered hands, you can put anything into our lives you want. You can take anything out of our lives you choose. We will go anywhere at any time, at any cost to serve your mission. Jesus, we surrender to you. And we pray that as we maintain that posture of surrender, that you would raise up leaders and use them to build up your church. Lord, bless this church, strengthen our leaders and encourage them. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.